Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Natatorium at the Phil Collins Memorial Sports Complex here on the beautiful Hoople campus. This week, we're talking about new remote sensing evidence that shows many southern Mesopotamian cities, like Lagash and Uruk, were crisscrossed with canals, filled with open spaces, and connected with each other and the wider world by boats, sort of like Venice. This contrasts with the image of an early Mesopotamia of tightly packed urban sites plunked into a desert environment, divided by the Tigris and Euphrates and their slowly shifting channels. What does a picture of decentralized communities living and working on islands mean for understanding early Mesopotamian urbanism in terms of organization, resources, and communication? Also, did everyone know how to swim? And if so, where did they learn? And how did that work if everyone just tossed their garbage into the canal and hoped it floated away? Okay, so should I start with the lightning round? Yeah, yeah I have one. Um, yeah, it never it wouldn't work to do it at the end. <laughs> it wouldn't really yeah. be lightning. That would be a thunder round. <laughs> <laughs> thunder round. The elimination round. The elimination oh, round. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh, in keeping with the theme, the emerging theme, um, where and when did you learn to swim? Huh. Huh. Okay. We're dredging up all sorts of memories here. Yeah, this is really what the show is about. <laughs> you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Um, you go first. Why not? Okay. I learned to swim at the YMCA in my hometown, which was way across town. And I remember distinctly getting driven to this very, you know, old fashioned YMCA, like, you know, like it smelled of the 1950s. <laughs> and I have very, very clear memories about, you know, being in this very dark, dank indoor pool. And that was a little ominous. <laughs> but, I, but I did learn how to swim. So there you go. What what age were you? I was young. I mean, I don't know. You know, I don't. I I, I don't know. Five, okay. six, something like that. I mean, okay. I knew how to swim. I think, and I also went to a day camp, Riverbend. Okay. And, and I also learned how to swim there. So both places, I guess, reinforced each other. Right. Yeah. The the YMCA when you walked in it was dark and a dark wood, and as you walked in on the way to the pool there was this huge old style trampoline. Oh, yeah. oh. 
I mean, but like massive, like it was like a room dedicated to a trampoline. <laughs> I would like to have that in my house. Uh, that can probably be arranged. Mm. Yeah. Well, all right. <laughs> Proverbial, I know a guy. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll go next because um, it's very, pre pretty mundane. I learned to swim in a day camp situation. Yeah. I was six or seven. Um, I have the feeling, uh, well, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I was one of the last in my group to learn to swim because I do remember being pulled out at rest time with a couple of other girls to have more swimming <laughs> lessons. So, um, but until I was pulled out, I didn't swimming. realize that I was behind. So, Alex? I think I learned to swim. I I, I have vivid memories of, of a bad experience at a YMCA somewhere <laughs> um, and like clinging to the diving board. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that I learned to swim um, at a beach club on the, on the Jersey shore oh. in, mm. uh, in the saltwater pool. Oh, oh. And uh I don't remember how old I was. Probably shockingly old. <laughs> What's that slow learner, that <laughs> yeah, right. slow learner that I that I was. <laughs> um, but that was the same town where uh, where many many years later, um, at my aunt's apartment building, she had a had a pool, and I offered my daughter twenty bucks if she would swim from one side of the pool to another. And she was like five. And she did. So she learned yeah. to swim. So talk about your economic incentives. Yeah. For... I want to just add one thing here at my August undergraduate institution. There was a, a swimming requirement. Test. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah us I, too. Us too. Oh, really? yeah. yeah. I mean, that can't still be in existence. <laughs> no, I think it's discriminatory and it's been eliminated everywhere. But looking back, isn't that kind of a crazy thing that you had to pass a swimming test to graduate from college? Well, I guess it's a safety thing. You know, you want all your students to... <laughs> you, want, you want to learn one useful thing. <laughs> well, in, in case you're, I don't know, walking near a canal and you fall in, you need to know how to... How no, to but isn't... It, it, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but isn't the Widener Library at Harvard named after a guy who dro drowned on the Titanic? Oh. Wow, I, yeah. I think that the Titanic is the is the origin of a lot of these swimming requirements at American be. universities. But that, that could be researched, which wiped yeah. out the ruling class. But <laughs> well, it didn't do a good enough job because they still. No. <laughs> we need another Titanic. Yeah, undoubtedly, ruling class one, iceberg we'll be, zero. Yeah, we'll be in space. <laughs> Well, let's but, let's continue to make the segue. But, right, but this this raises the the really the most interesting question for me, and and that is, how and where did you learn to swim in Mesopotamia? <laughs> Could you just like step right outside your door, in in southern Mesopotamia in Sumer and just like dive in? Sounds like apparently apparently so exactly right right. Right. And and this this article that we've just read kind of expands that from let's just dip into the Euphrates itself to maybe dipping into a canal. That's right. So if you were a kid growing up in Lagash, 
in the early dynastic period in the in the early third millennium you could just say mom i'm going over to visit my friend ushi and walk out the door <laughs> and dive into a canal and swim over to his house because the whole site apparently was built with crisscrossing canals and and uh, ports and docks and big open areas where kids could run and play <laughs> and and, and, and it's kind of place yeah it's kind of changing our vision of what um a city was in mesopotamia and what these early early cities were like yeah um or or is it or is it that's that's <laughs> Well, That's another sounds, one of the good questions, right? It, it right. sounds like it is. So we're talking about the uh, recent UAV photos and magnetic gradiometry that's been extensively done at southern Mesopotamian sites like Lagash, and how we now know that Lagash has is a very wet, marshy place with lots of discontinuous tufts of land. Uh, and gives us a whole different view of what urbanism in its initial form, because this is the place where we have the earliest cities, really. Though, you know, there are other kinds of urban forms that predate this, like Ashikli Huyuk and Chatel Huyuk and things like that. But whatever, for, for the purposes of this podcast, the earliest cities in southern Mesopotamia were discontinuous, and had waterways and causeways and uh, lots of opportunities to swim. And water slides, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It was like a big water park, kind of. Yeah. But but what what was the pre-existing vision? Because you look at these places today and they're very, very dry. Right. Well, first first of all, the the pre- We're Sorry, putting the, the onager in front of the cart or something, or <laughs> the cart in front of the onager. Um, well, so first of all, I learned something that I should have known before, which is um, in the case of Lagash, at least, so all these Mesopotamian city-states, which are clearly always much bigger than the city-states that we think of when we think of Canaan, which is more our neck of the woods. These things were vast and huge. Don't get me started. Right. But let's not, it's not a, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not a race. Yeah. That's not the new thing to me, by the way. I knew, I knew that. (laughs) But, uh, but uh, the fact that Lagash was a city, but the Lagash, the city state included other places, other mounds in the area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. so this is really a huge city-state regional complex. And then within the actual mound of Lagash, this is where the new stuff comes in. Uh, the actual mound of Lagash seems to have been formed out of these four um, marsh islands, three big. Turtlebacks. Huh? <laughs> Turtlebacks. <laughs> the origin of the story on which uh you know the 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 planet is resting on on turtles all stacked up right oh, yeah it's 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 yurtle <laughs> right right yurtle, yurtle is vindicated that that is right that is right <laughs> so the big i think the big um takeaway here is is that unlike uh what we had previously thought which was highly centralized, highly nucleated city-states 
with discrete wall systems that encompassed the city-state and a high degree of, you know, centralism, centralization. Right. Now we get a real sense of a very uh, dispersed set of institutions emerging literally out of the muck. Yeah. And, uh, and the space of the city-state being not a big contiguous area, but discontiguous uh, with lots of w different walled elements to it, emerging institutions in different places and just a lack of overall centralization. And, and I think that's a pretty big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it brings the sort of traditional fragmentation of Mesopotamia into a whole other level of, of fragmentation, um, an intercity level or yeah, uh, intra-city, yeah, yeah. Right, but where did this idea where did this idea that the that the city was kind of you know this roundish thing surrounded by a wall with a central district here and radiating streets and you know where did this where did this really come from and i think that that there was and and maybe still is a, a high level of presentism <laughs> yeah at, at work because well, you know in the in the middle of the 20th century, yeah. th there was this concept, you know, the Middle Eastern city um, that was developed, at least in anthropology. Yeah. And it, and it, you know, so everything sort of looked like, I don't know, the, the citadel at, in Damascus or Erbil or Marrakesh with a district here and a district there. And everything was dry and surrounded by dryness and steppe or, or desert. And, um, and, you know, and there was, there was a lot of planning and the institutions, the palace up there on the top of the hill kind of stuff. And, and these got sort of consciously and unconsciously transferred into archeology, span but really it's a, it's a mishmash. It's a higgly piggly social process to create a, a, jum a, a jumbled urban setting. Um, but maybe we should have known better. Well, and well, I guess that's that's the cautionary tale of of cautionary tales. We should have known better. Well, we always should have known better. Um, but what I liked about this, and I'm not usually one to say positive things about technological advances in archaeology. <laughs> but what I what I liked about this is a whole bunch of different remote sensing data was used to put together this this picture. Um, the study used. Um, um, now I didn't read, write it clearly enough to read my own handwriting, but, uh, uh, magnetic, uh, gradiometry, uh, it used, um, UAV photogrammetry and, um, I needed to look up the UAV, which is unmanned aerial vehicles, i.e. drones. Uh, right. For the listener, they're drones. <laughs> right. Um, and you put all this, um, as well as surface survey, um, and satellite imagery, and you put all this together, and you get you get this larger picture. All the evidence put together um, shows, you know, all these canals, different ways of getting at the fact that there are probably canals all over the city and the the harbors. So yeah, right. Lots of lots of personal, lots of small scale harbors and docks, and I think one of the 
researchers in the popular article referred to it as the Venice of the Near East. Right. And, and, uh, and right. And so I think one of the main takeaways is that we always viewed urbanism as very top down and very deliberate. Yeah. And again, sort of stressing a lot of um, higher order decision making and thinking from a centralized authority. We shall found this city on on the hill. And we plant we this to, flag. Yeah. Now we have to think of a much more um, kind of a flattened socioeconomic hierarchy with lots of you know horizontality, lots of little you know institutions and families and abilities. Right. Crop literally cropping up all over the place on this marshy wetland. Right, right. And I think shouldn't we have known that though? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's like a what that's like a what if question in history. It's like, yeah, maybe, but it's yeah. taken us to now to, but to to get this data. Part of I think the reason that um we've had this misperception for so long, um, it's not just based on 20th century perceptions of the Middle East. I think it's also based on what we know historically from Mesopotamia. Like you go back and you start your history with the Sumerian king list and you've got this concept of, of um, different cities. And we believe these guys. Well, no, but we we formed an impression <laughs> from these guys, uh, different cities uh, having power and that the power comes from the gods and also from other multiple other texts that, that the city-state um, belongs to a god, any given god, and that the right. people of the city-state are serving that god. So we've got this kind of centralized image from historical texts. Um, and then you've got, you know, sort of the old approach talking about the palace sector and the temple sector um, in right. terms of the economies of, of the it's, city. So we do have this top-down approach, which comes directly from how they portrayed themselves, I think is right. what It's the tyranny of the texts yeah. and the tyranny but, uh, of... But it's also of the kind of... Uh, the tyranny of the texts also informed the archaeology. So when Uruk yeah. was being excavated, the fact that they found, you know, parts of a wall, they the assumption is made that it goes around one big, you know, discrete, continuous area. The fact right. that they find the Iana precinct with all these temples, uh, even though they they knew about other precincts that did have temples, they it it you know the Iana precinct because it was so large and so robust became you know sort of had primacy. So yeah. it's it's the archaeology being fit into the texts. It's the archaeologists also being informed by the, the archaeology. <laughs> well, not just the archaeology, but it's exactly what you pointed out. In the late fifties and early sixties, you had you know this confluence of lots of social thinkers talking about urbanism, modern urbanism, and then you had the big conference at Chicago. Uh, Cities Invincible, where you had all these archaeologists coming together and a few of the sociologists who were working on urbanism and all coming up with sort of an urban template for antiquity. Mm. Um, and now that's all been smashed, shattered. Yeah. So we have to rethink everything. And I think one of the big things to come out of this is that this is not new for the rest of the world. So, you know, mm, true. this kind of thing, uh, a city with causeways and uh, lots and lots of, you know, aquatic use of aquatic resources and people floating around in canoes and boats. We know about that from the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan on mm. Lake Texcoco. 
So, you know, that was always the model for Tenochtitlan. Long. We know right. and if you go to Cambodia and Vietnam. Right. But, the, you know, and that's that's the basis. Right. And if you, you know, if you look at the Indus, Indus uh, River or Indus Valley civilizations, they always talk about Mahanjadaro and Harappa as having lots of separate mounds, you know, that this is a place made up of many mounds, some of which are highly centralized and deliberate and built on, you know, with a grid plan, but they they have many mounds. They haven't all been excavated, but this, you know, competing within the city, intra-urban, you know, differentiation right. is known from the Indus as well. So now- right. and, and West African urbanism. Right. As well, early West African urbanism. Right. And and there were there were big debates in the 1980s, like oh, is it is this urbanism at all, or what is this? And uh, because it's all very dispersed over a very large area, and there's separate mounds with spaces in between, and right. So we've had a very crimped version in some respects of what a city city really is. But nobody nobody ever looks at Venice and says, oh, that's not a city, right? Right. Um, um, you know. I think we should also be careful that even though this the popular article somebody did call it uh, the Venice of of ancient Mesopotamia, I I'm not sure it really was like that. I don't think it was. There are no there's there are no gondolas. evidence for gondolas. <laughs> right, right. No, I don't. I'm I'm not and, visualizing uh, canals with uh, which are deep. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's not what I'm visualizing. Well, Venetian canals aren't so deep. Well, they can fit a gondola without it bottoming out. Yeah, but a gondola draws like four, you know four inches. And all of a sudden, depending right. on how many fat tourists you get, technical about about gondola measurements. <laughs> right. That coming. The one thing I wanted to point out about Venice is Venice smells, and so now we can sort of say, man, these these marshy cities like Lagash, man, it must have really smelled. That's a good um, point too. Yeah, and we always think that ancient cities smelled regardless because of all the animals and the tanning of hides and all of these kinds right. of activities and now you add marshy swampy areas to yeah the i hadn't um, thought of that that's a very good point yeah yeah right and you know the waste is the waste is going out somewhere right so maybe maybe there are you know dry areas where people are throwing their garbage but uh if if the world is any is any indication, people are also throwing their garbage into the water, right? And it's yeah. and it's floating around. And boy, what a public health menace that would have that would have except been. for the right. fact that we know that the population of Lagash increases over time. So whatever pu right. public health issues they had, they weren't enough to limit the population growth. That's a good uh, point. Right. Yeah, this also I have to go it's back. Made to them stronger. What? <laughs> Oh. made them made them stronger yeah i have to go back to history for for a moment or at least to inscriptions because this does put into a different perspective i think it is um um ornanche king of lagash he of the famed ornanche plaque who is opening a canal am i right i'm pretty sure he's opening a canal right um, so so we already knew that canals were important i just never had really given it that much Thought and right. I don't, I don't think the canal that he opened was in the city, though. Well, we didn't really know. No, yeah. but I think it's just the importance. Of one okay. of the prerogatives of opening canals being important, right? And we know its greater importance being as the city itself was a myriad of canals and waterways. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Although right. it also does raise yeah. the question, do you need to open a new canal? Had one closed up, um, what is this canal connecting? Is it connecting the big major canal that maybe they could be seen <laughs> with, with, I don't know. What's Whatever. a public responsibility versus a private responsibility? <laughs> well, that's you an know? interesting question. That is, and, and but the whole not. but the whole thing is it really points to the to the to the need to uh, you know just to keep all these waterways going, the public ones. You you mm. need labor, right? And. Yeah. Uh, and to build whatever you know big scale infrastructure, you need labor and you need obviously management to go with. Well, I think right, that. and of course this—that's an interesting question because for so long the Oriental despotism model talked about the need to centralize and have mass labor to take care of these canals, and then there was a real pushback against that in the '60s and '70s with ethnographic work saying, "Yeah, no, it's really easy to dig a canal with a very limited amount of labor and to keep it clean." You just have to have some a little bit of management on a yearly basis to clean it out. Uh, so that's an interesting question. And of course, another interesting question, not of course, what I think is another interesting question <laughs> is that this model argues strongly for highly you know, decentralized or multi-centric cities, which is, that's great. And, and the Mayan are another example of that because we have Mayan centers that have lots of palaces and lots of ball courts and, you know, are very expansive and has lots of open land between all of these institutions. Right. So maybe th this is more of a Mayan model. But the other thing that's really interesting that out of this big mix with lots of decentralization and institutions growing up all over the place, right, on all of these little islands in Lagash, out of all of that, we do get a centralized, recognized, observable king. Right. And now we can say, oh, that king, whoever the king is, and they really were able to be very effective at creating coalitions and, you know, getting support right. and, and managing not just labor, but managing all these other competing and cooperating elites that are on these little islands. So these these early dynastic kings were real operators. I mean, they must have been really very good at creating, uh, you know, durable coalitions. Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah, um, and one and, thing and the infrastructure was a big part of it. Yeah, what they of what they did, right. also war. Right. <laughs> but, well, right. And manage. Right. Right. The infrastructure and the management of it is sort of the skeleton that we right. can see of their labor. Right. And it's also interesting now that we're thinking of Lagash as this big spread out watery entity. Um, right. And, we're and it's, uh, let me just point out that it's yeah. between four and six square miles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that exactly. And, and the fact that it is sort of the, the larger region uh, alliances and who's part of it and who's not part of it. And historically, big. the other thing, when we think about the early dynastic period, um, we think about Lagash having a war with Uma, right. which isn't that mm, far away. What? I hate those guys. I yeah, hate right. those guys. <laughs> so, so, and, and, you know, Uma doesn't figure into anything that we've been reading about today, but what was important historically, this war that went on for a couple of generations on and off. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it doesn't figure, you know, we, we don't see it archaeologically, certainly not from what we've been reading here. We see we see this complicated infrastructure. We see this uh, very complex site um, architecturally and and formation process 
of the site wise, but, um, and, and that seems to be the dominant picture as opposed to what might've been an important in the moment war, but uh, doesn't seem formative. Right. And when uh, it's also important to point out that um, every site in Southern Mesopotamia is going to be a little bit different based on its location and the fur, but in general, the further North that you go, um, the amount of water and the distribution of water and, and, and channels and the ability to create canals changes. And until at a certain point, it just it kind of diminishes to nothing. And, and certainly when you get to Northern Mesopotamia, it's a whole other, it's a whole other thing. Right. And, and, yeah. uh, but, but even a place like, like Uruk, which is, you know, to the North West a little bit, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, it has canals that crisscross, but it has a wall that goes all the way around right. and it has docks and storehouses, but it's a very, it's a, it's a somewhat different kind of um, configuration, yeah. even if it might've started out this in similar kinds of ways it, and it builds up to a different end, end product in some respects. Right. And that just speaks to the importance of the environmental conditions on on you know the pushing and pulling political development and economic development and what and yeah. at, right and so uh and there's also the chronological issue so they, they they were working out some of these details in the far south in the marshy areas and then once you know you have sort of an urban template and a process to become an elite over everybody else and you have a different kind of more either regular or more orderly environmental situation, then you get these more centralized cities. That right, are more orderly, that's a good- Right, yeah. more traditional. Right. Kind of cities that you know we traditionally think of. Uh, and so that ha happens up as you head, as you go north. Right, yeah, and, 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 and the environment is changing the whole period. Right, and the environment is changing exactly. The, the 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 Gulf is is you know the only reason this is any, happening in the first place is that the Gulf, the, the Persian Gulf, Arabian Gulf, we we make no we make no calling on that. It go it 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 moves to the north like around four thousand, and then it decides to move to the south. Yeah, um, right. Trying out the area. 3, right, and the and the the cha the channels of the. Tigris and Euphrates, which are always flooding and they're always moving this way and that yeah. way. And you could, you could literally wake up one day and it's like, where, where's the water? It's right. 10 miles that way. Right. Uh, Until it's up. all in the middle of the desert. Right. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, and again, this is just, I mean, this stuff is great, but a lot of these little pieces of information have been around. Uh, when Ebla was excavated, it was kind of, um, it was a big adjustment to think about big open space within the city. Right. That, um, areas for pasturage and areas for orchards and possibly even agriculture within the walls of the city. Right. So one of the results of this most recent work is talking about how cities had empty space in the middle or open space rather in the middle. Right. Uh, but we sort of knew that. We just didn't really fully integrate it into, you know, what we think of as a city. Um, but that was, I think, an important element of these sort of, you know, early dynastic and late third millennium cities was open space in it. 
That's very interesting to point out because one thing I was thinking of while I was reading it is the kind of Mesopotamian myth and certainly the way I still teach it, um, the desert versus the sown, that old <laughs> trope, you know, where you've got your fear of the Martu, the Amorites and all this, um, the, there's actually less of a difference than we might think between the the urban dwellers and the 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 pastoralists who might move from one space to another, um, possibly within the whole the same large urban area. Now we have we have to think of you know pastoralists and agriculturalists and aquatic people who <laughs> 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 are just you know uh, you fish know, people fish you know right fish and and water people and women you know, and and they're spending their life in the water and around the water and, you know, harvesting right. aquatic resources yeah. and drawing and selling and pushing and pulling all this uh, wealth that comes from, uh, that comes from these marshy areas, the right. reeds, the waterfowl, the, 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 um, the fish, the crustaceans. So yeah, there's sort of three elements now to consider and they all undoubtedly overlap. Right. Uh, you know, some you're eventually you're sitting at a table with your family and some of those some of that family are pastoralists and some are aquanauts and some are <laughs> <laughs> agriculturalists <laughs> yeah yeah no i think that's and, Wait, and the, but the, go ahead oh, go ahead no go ahead no go after ahead. you <laughs> all right alphonse and gaston over here <laughs> yeah but the people who eventually are writing the tr writing all this stuff down the administrators the scribes, and then the people who work for the big institutions by the middle of the third millennium, certainly the end of the third millennium, they're very downtown urban. Yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe they're kind of, it's the Upper West Side or Upper East Side perspectives. <laughs> like, no, the people who live out in the boondocks, they're kind of scary and icky. Mm -hmm. And yeah, those regions are are dangerous. Don't, don't go out there. Don't, don't right. you know, and... It, it becomes a very um, sort of 1970s New York <laughs> perspective. You can go on these blocks, but just don't go to the Bronx, whatever whatever you do. That's, and, yeah. uh, That's very interesting, actually. And, and, and that, you know, we, we bought into, stupid us, we bought into that picture to a certain extent about social relations and spatial distribution of, of stuff. Whereas, you know, let's say 100 years ago or 150 years ago in New York, where you could go to your cousin who was a farmer, a dairy farmer in the Bronx, <laughs> um, it's a very different, it was a very different kind of, kind of picture. And, you know, the, 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 the not only the, the reality, but the perception of what the city is and is going to be changes in a, and in, in, certainly in the case of New York, changed very quickly. Yeah. And the aquatic aspect of New York, just to harp on New York, um, <laughs> also changed um, hugely in in the course of the of the nineteenth and twentieth century. Um, right. Well, that's all true. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure it's a perfect analogy, but it's a pretty good analogy. It's perfect. I know you it's really want to get that off your chest. So I'm really glad yeah, you had your I've been reading all these books about New York and the, and the harbor. Right. Well, I think the big thing is, is that cities were a big jumble, uh, yeah. both historically uh, and um, 
and we try to artificially order simplify. them. Yeah. Simplify and order yeah. them. And I think uh, it's partly because we have, you know, limited historical text. So we do think about the wars between city states and other city states as opposed to the internal dynamics of a huge city like this. Right. And of course, what we're missing is, you know, who are the you know, UMA collaborators living on little <laughs> parcels of tufts of land in, in Lagash, because yeah. that must have been happening also. And then, of course, when you bring up historical texts, it is kind of interesting. Why aren't they ever, you know, talking about the Aqua people and, you know, every, I mean, maybe they do and we haven't given that right. enough emphasis. Well, but um, they talk a lot about pastoralists and pastoral products, but a little bit less on the. But there is a lot of there are a lot of economic texts, obviously, even in these early periods. Yeah, uh, yeah but are they talking uh, related about to fish much? and birds and reeds and stuff like that? And there's a lot of imagery related to right. water. A lot of it. Yeah, yes. there is a lot, a lot of, of it. But I don't know about the quantity of texts talking about reeds. I just have no idea. Well, re no, I don't know reeds, fish certainly. But, no, uh, here's what I wanted to say about reeds. Um, so think of all those early cylinder seals with the reed huts. And, yeah. and and that was, you know, that's usually considered the earliest form of architecture. And then they started making mud brick houses. But if you think it's about the reeds, trope. what? Yeah, it's another it's trope. It's their own trope. It's their right. own trope. But if you think about it, these reed houses, so so having a city which is half marsh with marshy areas, even within the city, and what was emphasized in the article was even in economic texts, you have an economy based on agriculture, animal products fish and reeds. So I never really thought about reeds as an economic product before this, but of course it is. It's your, if, if you're in a, living in a marsh or living with marshes to your left and right, right, reeds take on a whole other dynamic. Sure. And of course, you know, there's a meta aspect because if you're a scribe, what mm. are you writing with? Ooh. If you're writing with a reed. So <laughs> actually it's surprising there isn't more reed talk. That's a very good point. <laughs> Right, it's something that's so natural. I never think of so reeds natural. in the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. Can't, can't look at them the same way. The other thing that I like about this, something we talked about earlier, is that you know it, it's something that we we sort of should have known in in the sense that there are for a long time, and really even going back to the beginning of of archaeology in Mesopotamia, we we had bits and pieces of all of these kinds of data. Yeah, uh, and. And certainly in the 20th century, when archaeology kind of really got going, people were taking photographs of sites from airplanes. Mm -hmm. And people were taking, when satellites went up, there were satellite photos, which then became available in the 1980s and 90s. And yeah, people did experiments here and there with magnetometry and, and other scientific techniques. So the, there were scattered bits and pieces, but what's now possible and now has been done is is to bring it all together to create really a very a very new and fresh conception of what of what was going on right. um, the textbooks have to be rewritten because yeah. well that's very clear and yeah that's yeah. a big a big outcome is we are going to have to completely revisit our understanding of of urban earliest urbanism and you know this a, a greater emphasis on something that is quite current and sort of the way we conceptualize and organize our thoughts on the world, which is a great deal of diversity. Um, and of course, the diversity that we are emphasizing in the past is juxtaposed against the overall and extraordinary degree of homogenization of our current 
urban world. Right. So right. There's, you know, that's that's all going on. You know, there's some kind of weird undercurrent of nostalgia for, you know, diversity as we are being stamped and pressed into a mold that is, you know, pretty, pretty, um, you know. But that's hot. also, that's also a kind of weird um, top-down presentist prejudice because, you know, certainly ancient, an, an ancient city like Lagash is going to have apparently at its peak, tens of thousands of people who come from all over, who probably speak different languages or at least different dialects. They have different um, socioeconomic. I knew you were going to get that different dialect thing in there. I I like the dialect angle. You've been talking Um, about different dialects. Well, yeah, no, we shouldn't forget about the Acadians population mixed in. (laughs) Who speaks for the Acadians? But but it's also, um, you know, whatever the social basis is, tribes, whatever they are, kinship groups, who who knows? And there's and, you know, traders coming from here and there. There's a lot of there's a lot of let's call it just social diversity. But every city in the world um, today has exactly the same thing. New York City you know, whatever, 130 languages being spoken, this district uh, getting bigger, that district getting smaller, you know, Chinatown oh my God. shifting inside. <laughs> size. Deconstructing New York. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, uh, uh, Little Italy getting <laughs> littler and littler <laughs> um, as people move to here and there. Um, <laughs> you know, Koreatown, which, you know, 100 All years right. ago, there was no Koreatown, this kind of thing. So. Yeah. Okay. But, but, you know, but, big fat, but it's, it's not, no, it's not a perfect analogy because, you know, before you have easy air travel and stuff, you have populations that are definitely heterogeneous, but I think less so than what you're describing for New York in the 19th and 20th centuries. I think uh, you do have um, different groupings and certainly you have elites and non-elites and you have neighborhoods. And I like that analogy. I'd like the neighborhood analogy very much. But um, but it's um, it's imperfect because you probably have a majority, a vast majority of southern Mesopotamians uh, coming from here, there and everywhere. And you have some slightly northern northern Akkadian speaking, Semitic speaking Mesopotamians in the mix, even in the early dynastic period. But I'm not quite sure that you can go beyond that in terms of well, where are the Elamite speakers. Well, they're being fought <laughs> against, but oh. you're right. They're there. <laughs> Right. Where where are the the Indus Valley traders and their okay. and their district Good where you point. can buy <laughs> Indus Valley products okay. and, and okay. the desert people and whatever who whoever they are I think that there's a tremendous amount of diversity in in you know conventional sort of ethnic terms even in the early dynastic period oh yeah. I'd be happier with that in the Akkadian period but again I'm going from old no, historical I, models. Well, um, no, I, but I've always thought that there was a great deal of diversity and that it gets, you know, undermined by textual, by, you know, textual biases. Yeah, textual biases and elites trying to impose, you know, a degree of centralization and hom- homogenization. Um, I mean, you can just look at, right? Isn't there all sorts of topographic? names that aren't semitic and aren't and yeah. are sumerian but even stuff that is not sumerian and you know right. that always gives it away um 
you know, it's that whole sort of Europe before the Europeans kind of thought, you know, all of these groups and who are they and they're not represented and all we have is material culture. And that's always a very difficult thing to move from material culture to specific groups. But yeah, there must have been a lot of groups and they must have been, you know, mixing it up pretty good. And now we know that they were mixing it up underwater as well. (laughs) Underwater. Okay. Okay, final thoughts? Um, Okay, I have a final thought, which is kind of a continuation. I want to make a final thought about reeds. I wasn't quite done with reeds, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is very appropriate. Who speaks for the reeds? We're talking about marshes. I just wanted to mention um, two other or one, one and a half other read notes about Mesopotamian civilization, which is, isn't um, in the Gilgamesh epic, or maybe in the earlier version, isn't the god talking to Utnapishtim through a reed hut? Isn't he calling out reed hut? Am I remembering that correctly? Um, There's something like that. And um, then the other, so so in other words, even after long after these cylinder seals, we have this memory of reed construction as important. And then also, let's well, not Gilgamesh has to dive down right. deep to get the yeah, plant right, the, the, right. with the eternal life plant. So to get he's that plant, right? Which could be a reed. He's a swimmer. He's certified. That, oh, right. very good, very good. Yeah. And then I just wanted to point out that Marsh Arabs existed um, in the southern area of Iraq until Saddam Hussein comes and, along. Well, and they still do. And they I still mean, do. Exactly. Yeah. But it, so, it waxes and wanes, unfortunately, yeah. um, so, so my political circumstances and, and environmental. Right. And my final thought is really, let's not forget the, the humble reed, because reeds <laughs> and marshes are really uh, more central than perhaps He's we had pod. thought about. Yeah. That's that's it's like the Meadowlands, right? Well, and of course, that's the that's the outlier is that you know marshlands in in North America were eschewed, you know they stayed far away from them, and they became they became you know the domain of waste products and and you know places to <laughs> places to put and, guys that you wanted to get rid of, right? Um, and and giant sports venues, right? And, and parking lots. Um, my final thought is when when it came to deciding whether to sink or swim, the the people of Lagash voted to to swim. Fair enough. I want to know how Sumerian kids learned how to swim. <laughs> was there a why that they sent to? They were sent to a class or classes, or there was it really just you know get sink thrown in the water and yeah. sink or swim. <laughs> Don't, don't let what happened to your sister happen to you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay. 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 Well, this episode is as good a time as any to remind our listener that learning to swim is a vital skill and to never, ever drive a car into running water. But in any case, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Bavaria Knitting Mills of Chicago, makers of comfortable and dependable wool swimwear. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Or send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, it's all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.